Welcome to Mind Love, episode 208. Today's episode is all about how to break the cycle of reactive parenting with the author of Raising Good Humans, Hunter Clark Fields. We kind of expect ourselves to go into those really tough moments and then just be able to make a choice of, I'm going to be able to pause. But non-reactivity is like a muscle that you build, that you have to like go to the gym to build, right? And it's built through mindful practices every day. And what I think is that you sit there and it's not like rainbow sparkles shoot out of your ear and you're in bliss. It's like you sit there and you're like, oh, I think I need to do blah, blah, blah. Oh, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Oh, I forgot to do this. And like your brain goes crazy and emotions arise and all this stuff comes up. And you stay. And so you're practicing literally building a muscle of non-reactivity. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hello, love. If you haven't subscribed yet, hit that cute little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews are really a great way to give back if you find this show helpful. They help the show climb the charts, which helps me get even more amazing guests for you. Today, I'd love to share a review from Your Life Full of Grace, who says, This podcast is a strong cup of good cheer for the soul. Original, authentic, and deeply entertaining. Melissa Monti's boundless curiosity lays hold of the human condition with both hands and insists with optimism and insight that we can improve, that whatever challenges we may be facing, we can not only find the solutions that will bring lasting healing and transformation, but we can even begin to be happy in the present moment. No waiting required. There is so much here to help you. Don't miss out on all that Mind Love has to offer. Thank you so much for this review. You are an incredible writer. (laughs) And I am so honored to be the subject of this little blurb. So thank you so much. And now let's get to the show. Do you ever look at your kid and think, man, I wonder what trauma I'm gonna accidentally inflict upon you? Because I know, despite my very best efforts, there is going to be something. Okay, maybe trauma is a big word, But everyone has childhood wounds, needs that weren't met, whether our parents even realized it or not. Way back in episode 48, I interviewed a spiritual teacher named Teal Swan. She sees auras and she has a child. So she said that there have been many times where she just sees her child's aura fade when she reacts and she's like, damn it, that's going to leave an emotional scar. I can't avoid it. There are just going to be things, even if you have the rare ability to see it happen right in front of you. I am reminded of a time when I was four or five years old. I have always loved to sing. If you follow me on Instagram and watch my stories, you've probably gathered that by now. Well, I remember riding in the car with my mom. It was a long car ride. And I thought the very best thing to do was to sing Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You at the top of my lungs, you know, as a gift to my mother. Mind you, at the time, I had an incredibly raspy voice. (laughs) I could probably hit like five of the notes, if that. Well, I vividly remember asking her, Mom, do you think I could be a famous singer when I grow up? (laughs) That's how I assume my child self sounded like. (laughs) And my mom, after likely being tormented for the last hour, responded with, 
well, you have some work to do to get there. And in that moment, I felt my energy just drain. It was like a dream had been crushed. Don't get me wrong. My mom has always made me feel like I can do anything, which might be why this response felt so discouraging to me. I remember feeling like this was her way of telling me that I just was not a good singer. My mom has no recollection of this, and when I brought it up once, she was mortified, especially because I didn't really start getting comfortable singing solo in front of people until my late 20s. So maybe that insecurity started there, maybe it didn't, but it's something that I think about. If you have kids, I'm sure most of you have a story like that, where you responded in a way that turned out to be less than helpful or maybe even discouraging. But the good news is, just the fact that you're listening to this show says that you're the kind of person who doesn't settle for autopilot. The fact that you love your child enough to think, can I make small changes to do this parenting thing a little better, tells me that you're already doing an amazing job. Yes, there are tips about communicating with kids and motivating them and helping them learn, but what I'm learning is that the biggest impact you have is what you model for them. One day, they are going to be responsible for taking care of themselves, and showing them how you take care of yourself is probably the most effective way to do that. If you don't take care of your own needs first, then you basically put yourself on the brink of fight or flight all day long, so every little problem feels like a crisis. You set up all the circumstances for being reactive, making it nearly impossible to respond as your higher adult self. When you take care of your needs first, you calm your own storm so you can tend to your child. Not only is this a really critical part of making your life better, it also brings more opportunities to teach your child, whether you're actually creating a teaching moment or you're just modeling for them a healthier way to be in the world. So today we're gonna figure out how to do all that so we can make sure we raise happy, healthy little humans. Our guest is Hunter Clark Fields. She is a mindful mama mentor and widely followed author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. She helps parents bring more calm and peace into their daily lives, and she has over 20 years of experience in meditation practices and has taught mindfulness to thousands worldwide. And she's the mother of two active daughters. So three key things we will learn are how to identify the harmful patterns that may have been passed down through generations, why giving advice or offering solutions is not helpful and what to do instead, and how to yell less. But before we get started, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you get a little inspiration to set a positive focus for the day, like a short note from your highest self. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Hunter Clark Fields to the show. I'm glad to be here. Yes. Thank you. So what inspired you to write a book about raising good humans? Well, we probably assume that we're raising good humans. <laughs> <laughs> For me, the work comes out of really bombing what was the, supposed to be the most important job of my life at the time. I thought I was like really 
doing. And basically it comes out of what I was doing the worst at. And I was so frustrated with because I'm kind of like, you know, you go through life, you can get grades, you can go to college, go to grad school, do all these things and like get the good grade. And then you get into parenting and you have this 18 month old child, two year old child. And all of a sudden it's like a train wreck and (laughs) it's so much harder than I thought it would be. And I, for me, my anger came out, come by legitimately through my father. And I had this big temper that came up and arose and it just was like the exact opposite of who I wanted to be. And I was so frustrated with not being able to just choose how I wanted to parent and discovering that I had all these conditions in me and all these habit energies in me and all these things in me that were coming up that I didn't want. So I felt like I was failing at the job. So I started to really dive in very deeply in how to do this better. What I have found really interesting so far in my eight months of parenting, (laughs) well, and a whole lot of reading, I'll be reading how they say, they, I'm doing air quotes, say like the best way to communicate with a child or the best way to discipline or what have you. And most of the things are not what I would assume. Like our common assumptions or our default modes aren't actually the things that tend to be the most helpful. I wonder why that is. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because probably you may be like my generation as well. We were raised by parents who were All parents are influenced by their parents before them, but also by behaviorist ideas about child rearing and behavior. And behaviorist ideas are this idea that you reward some behavior and you disincentivize other behaviors and therefore you will get the behaviors you want is kind of the like theory behind that. But unfortunately, it doesn't actually work that way with human beings very well. So a lot of the things that are kind of second nature for us, or at least what I noticed for me is I'm telling my child to do something, expecting them to listen. And then the things that come second nature to us are kind of threats and yelling. These things actually make our children less likely to want to cooperate with us. They actually create more resistance. And that's what the research shows. And it's very frustrating for us as parents because These are the habits and the conditions that are ingrained in us from our own childhood and from the culture around us. So it becomes really hard to be the generation that's shifting and changing old habits. Does that make sense? It does. And I have spent a lot of time reflecting on my life. (laughs) But it comes with the job, number one. But number two, now that I'm a parent, I'm looking back at how my mom parented, which she was a great parent, especially for the times. I I don't know if she read the amount that I read or whatever, but I always felt loved and safe and all that. But I will say that there was always something in me that kind of got a kick out of being rebellious. And so when I wasn't allowed to do something, it wasn't necessarily that I was like, okay, well, now I'm angry that I can't do this. I thought that the rule meant I had to figure out a way around it without anybody knowing, which is so funny that now I have all these preconceived notions about what it's going to be like. I'm in for a treat with toddlers. And I already had a plan, even with my birth, that completely didn't go as planned. So it's like, we have these ideas of what we're going to be like as a mom, and they just don't go that way, no matter what age you're at, (laughs) at any given time. 
It's really frustrating. I mean, we think that we can just choose. I will be this way and I will respond this way. And then we have a lot of parent coaches who say, just respond this way. And it's very frustrating because when we're in this parent-child relationship and we're in the trenches with our children, they are human beings that are wired survival with a nervous system that has a hair trigger reaction for being upset, just as we are, right? Our nervous system is wired to be look on the lookout for threats. And so we can be stressed, right? We can have that stress response happen very, very quickly. And because both of us are in this situation that can cause these stresses on us, it makes it so that Well, it's lovely that all these people are saying, well, just this is the way you should respond. Just respond this way. Just say these right things and everything will be cool. It's impossible to do that when you don't take into account that you have this nervous system because when you have your stress response starts to kick in, which is, as you know now, (laughs) probably a lot of moments in parenting, when that threat response happens in our body, it literally bypasses a huge portion of our brain so that we can just react instantly. And so it makes it so our whole brain is not accessible in those moments because we're reacting. Our nervous system has us reacting to a threat. So literally like the prefrontal cortex area where our higher order thinking, our verbal ability, our problem solving ability, our empathy, all of those things are sort of loosely generally said to be seated in that area, that's inaccessible. Our brain is hijacked. And so then all those good things to say kind of have gone out the window. So it really behooves us to make calming our natural (laughs) evolution-given nervous system, making calming that stress response reaction, one of the most important things we can do because we can be great parents in a lot of situations, but we're all at our worst when we're reactive, when we're just reacting because of that stress threat response. And we need to put our attention and energy anywhere (laughs) in parenting It really is to calm those moments when we end up scaring our kids, threatening our kids, and really creating disconnection and disruption in our relationship. Because like the parenting you described where you were like, oh, I felt rebellious against my parents. We can parent in such a way that our kids have intrinsic, internal motivation to cooperate with us. And what you described was like that extrinsic, external motivation, which isn't very effective at all. Sorry, throw a lot out there at you, Melissa, but that's one of the biggest challenges. Right. And so our prefrontal cortex goes offline. So we're basically in fight or flight. Our child's prefrontal cortex isn't even fully developed. So it's like two cave people just screaming at each other, (laughs) wondering why nothing's getting done. And so one of the things though, is before we get into some of the ways to focus on calming these natural responses, I've noticed too that what triggers one parent isn't going to trigger another parent. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that I'm triggered by, it really hasn't come up with my baby quite yet, but just in life, Mm -hmm. it goes back to old childhood wounds, whether it was the way I was parented, whether it was something that happened when I was a kid. And sometimes these things end up getting passed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's like a whole line of family doesn't express I love you, or maybe they all are quick to anger or whatever it is. 
But when you've been living in it for so long through your own life, watching your parents, watching even your grandparents, it can be so difficult to identify some of the harmful patterns that we're passing down. How do we get clear on those so that we can maybe use a little bit of intention before we again pass it to one more generation? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How do we get clear on those so that we can maybe use a little bit of intention before we again pass it to one more generation? Yeah, you've identified a really important thing to have awareness of. I mean, so I teach mindfulness and mindfulness is a way for us to develop our awareness in general in our lives. And that's one of the things that we can do. We can become more mindful and more thoughtful and build that muscle in our lives. But also like 
in the mindful parenting course that I teach, like there are questions. It really helps you to kind of dive into your childhood if you're becoming a parent or you are a parent and maybe with a therapist, maybe with a friend and just try to understand like, how are you parented? How did you react to your parents? I mean, not to place blame because our parents were doing the best they could with what they had and they had their own habits and patterns, but just to identify, well, this is the way it was in my family and this is how I felt when I was disciplined. This is where I felt close to my parents. This is where I felt really disconnected from my parents and start to unpack some of that stuff because sometimes we tend to, we don't really unpack that stuff and we think, oh, this is just the way it is. We should just threaten our kids to take away their iPads because that's what people do in our culture. But then if we actually look back at our own culture and say, oh, when my parents threatened to ground me and had nothing to do with whatever had happened, this is how I felt. And we can start to put ourselves in the shoes of a child. It really, we can make much smarter, much more thoughtful decisions. It's interesting to me how much reading how to correctly parent or not, I shouldn't even say correctly, but in a more mindful way, bringing intention to it. It's like shining light on some of my childhood wounds. One of the things that keeps coming up is this idea of like a child is frustrated when they feel like they don't have any control over their lives and they don't really have much control over their lives because we're telling them what to do. We're signing them up for stuff. You even gave an example in your book of like wrestling the shoes on your child, (laughs) things like that. And, And then we ask questions and it's like, because I said so. And I remember feeling so frustrated, almost like an adult in a child's body, which I know I wasn't, but it felt that way. It felt like, why don't I have these rights? Like 15 years till I turn 18, you know what I mean? (laughs) And so I found so far by just shining light on ways that I want to be more mindful with parenting, it's actually even going to the point of feeling like it's healing childhood wounds. Like my little inner child is feeling heard for the first time, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, understanding these things that trigger us and understanding our childhood and healing those wounds, it's really some of the most important work we can do in parenting. It's kind of, most parents are thinking, how can I get my child to listen to me? And we don't want to hear about our own childhood wounds. But It really makes a lot of sense because a lot of times what we're reacting to is our own baggage and we don't even realize that. And we're going to have some baggage, like that's going to happen, that's totally fine, (laughs) you don't have to, we're all human, but hopefully we'll pass on a lighter backpack (laughs) of baggage to our children if we can heal some of our own stuff. I mean, it really is very clear. So I could see, I remember I had yelled at my daughter Maggie and she was just such a wee little thing, she was so cute and I could see her skin of me and I could see her cry. And I remember just crying like in guilt and sadness and shame over that. And I reflected and I realized not after just like one time, but after a number of times I realized, oh, like her big feelings when she gets upset at me for whatever, to me, it feels unacceptable. In my body, it feels so unacceptable. Like this cannot be. And I realized that happens for me Because when I was little, my big feelings triggered my father to yell at me and scare me and spank me and that. And so I really got this message honed into my guts that it was unacceptable to have these big feelings. So 
I could see, oh, because of that, I'm just repeating this pattern. And I've also known my father. He was very harshly disciplined, if you want to call it that, by my grandfather in the 1950s using a belt, etc. So I'm not even saying that to blame my father. I often talk about my father, but my father was reacting from his old patterns too. And it was just like to unpack that, I was able to see clearly and say, oh, this has nothing to do with my child and whatever she wants to do in this moment. This has everything to do with this generational baggage that I am holding and carrying. And I have to heal that if I'm going to have a chance of having a clear and free relationship with my child. It's amazing to me how many things I've subconsciously agreed to that once I bring it into my consciousness, I don't agree with it at all. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> you know. Yeah, totally. But there's like a part of us where, oh, this is how I feel like it should be. And it's a practice that I even try giving other people grace when I don't understand their decisions. Cause I'm like, I don't even know if this person is consciously adhering to this rule or being this way or whatever, or if this is just subconscious programming for them of how they've been taught or they've been shown that this is how it should be. This is what's acceptable, what is not acceptable. And so we just like react with this instinct without being like, wait, what is actually going on here? Let me break it down. And let me think if, if I were like writing out how I want to be, would I include this in there? And in the beginning of your book, you challenge your readers to have a clear idea of how we would like our family lives to be. But as we talked about earlier, a lot of times things don't go as planned anyway. So why is it important to make mm -hmm. that conscious decision about how we want our family lives to be, even though it might get all screwed up? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that you're bringing in the vision and the reality. Well, it's always good to have a vision of what you want. So when you have a choice point, you can make a choice towards that vision. That's really an essential for having some kind of conscious plan in your life of having the life you want is to start to step back every once in a while and say, hmm, okay, that was my North Star. How far away from my North Star am I? And how can I get back on track toward that North Star. So yeah, I think that understanding what we want is so important because a lot of us, we want to have a close relationship with our kids. We want to feel connected and that may be our highest goal and aspiration. We want to have a lifelong relationship with this person. We want them to grow up to be a good person who's emotionally stable, who likes and accepts themselves, who is kind to others, right? These are might be values that we want. If we don't take those moments of stepping back and realizing, we may not realize that we may be parenting from patterns, cultural patterns that are actually kind of the opposite of that. So we have a lot of cultural patterns passed down from patriarchal culture that values instant obedience and like power over. Like, I should just have to say something once to a child, which is like 
this crazy expectation. And it's really interesting to say this because a lot of times we don't even realize we have this expectation, but I totally have this expectation like built into my subconscious. And it's completely bonkers because we have these like higher expectations for kids than we even do for adults. Like not only do children not learn something just from being told once to do it, no adults do. Like everybody requires repetition to be able to learn different things in life. But sometimes we have this idea that I should just have to say something once. We can have ideas like that, like I should just have to say something once. And if we look at it and examine it, we say, oh, this is actually incompatible with my vision of what I want, which is I want to have a close relationship with this person throughout my life. I want them to feel emotionally grounded, accept themselves and et cetera. Does that make sense? It does. I'm reminded of one of my friends and I are very aligned in ways that we parent. So we're often like reading the same things, the similar things are important to us, even in our own lifestyles. And so we share a lot of information. And it's funny though, because if I show my mom or my grandma certain preferences or share that with them. They're just like, what's the big deal? Like battery operated toys aren't a big deal. And I'm like, I don't want them to be overstimulated or like, this isn't a big deal. And I have a reason for everything. I do try to let up, but at least when I have my child, I have specifics, right? And so people are always telling me and my friend like, oh, but look, you turned out fine. And and me and my friend are both like, did we though? (laughs) Most most of my 20s have been trying to fix my own shit, frankly. (laughs) Like, Like just because it's common and it's widely accepted doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best way to be. And also, You can't do the best way to be in every single moment of parenting because you'll drive yourself crazy. But there's a balance between, yes, shedding light on certain things and being mindful and being intentional about how you want to show up as a parent. And then also giving yourself grace when things don't go exactly as you planned or when things are harder than you thought or when maybe you're not making a fresh meal for your child three times a day and you're going with the frozen stuff or whatever. There's definitely a middle path to be walked with that. And what you were talking about, Melissa, about I'm with you there. I did not want the battery operated toys. I really wanted a simplified environment for my kid because the research shows that it can be overstimulating for kids and it's much more calming and it helps develop creativity to have a simpler environment and it helps everybody have a like less stress response, which I'm all about. But it reminded me of that quote, Krishnamurti, who said, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So I don't know if our society is profoundly sick, but that whole statement of like, Oh, but I turned out okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to question that. Like, but did you? Did you really? <laughs> and and this one, are your relationships with your parents healthy and happy? Are you really? Yeah, it's important to question all those. And there is a middle path to walk. And I think that as you walk that middle path from an older parent to a younger parent, I'll tell you this. Right now, you have so much control over your child's life. When they're young, you control everything, which is in a lot of ways a blessing. Like you can really limit your child's screen time when they're young, which is health and good. You can control the food they eat when they're young, limit their sugar <laughs> you know, when they're young, all that stuff. Now my children are 11, 14. And so as your kids grow, you have less and less 
power over your children. So when they're young, you control everything. You have all this sort of power over them. As they grow older, you have less. And so what is really important to develop between now and then as you kind of walk this middle path is influence. So the more you use power over, the less influence you have. The less you use that power over, the more influence you have. And so what my goal was, was to not have my kids hate me when they were 14. And my daughter does not hate me. <laughs> She's 14. I'm like, hallelujah, I did something right. She doesn't Winning. hate me. You know? <laughs> Winning, right? But it, part of it is because I shifted away from power over and started to move in a way that's like where the word discipline means to teach. A disciple is someone who follows a teacher. To discipline is to teach our children. And that's the middle path you have to walk is to teach our kids, to think about it as teaching, not as to shift that mindset away from the kind of those harmful mindsets of the past that there's still hold a whole lot of sway over a whole lot of people all around you. (laughs) (laughs) So when we get to that moment, though, often when a child is disobeying or doing something that triggers us or making a mess they're not supposed to, whatever it is. You talked about first bringing mindfulness to our own reactions because when we're in fight or flight, we're not going to show up as our best self and be able to teach our child. So when you are practicing this, how do you do it? How did you first cultivate this after those feelings of failing? Because it does take practice because again, it's not our first instinct. Is it one of those things for you where you practice doing all of these other things mindfully so that you're more likely to show up mindfully in that moment? Do you have like a practice in that moment of saying, hey, mommy needs to step out for a second, take a deep breath? How do you get to that moment of calming your nervous system before you react so that you can teach. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. 
Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. How do you get to that moment of calming your nervous system before you react so that you can teach? It's a million dollar question. I know it's incredible, but unfortunately the answer is you can do some things in the moment and the answer is it's a muscle that you build. This ability to pause is like a muscle. And just in the same way, like that moment with your child where they're losing it or they're doing something bad and you're just like, that's like the parenting equivalent of say your kids in the Little League World Series, right? And you don't send your kid to the Little League World Series without them ever having gone to a practice, without them having the muscle memory of how to swing that bat. You practice time and time and time again to get to that moment. So you have that memory. And so it's the same with us. We kind of expect ourselves to go into those really tough moments and then just be able to make a choice of, I'm going to be able to pause. But non-reactivity is like a muscle that you build, that you have to like go to the gym to build. And it's built through mindful practices every day. I mean, sitting mindfulness meditation is the gold standard. It sounds crazy, I know, for me to say that to a mother of an eight-month-old, but it really can be done. And I have mothers of infants to do a mindfulness practice because basically it's like you're training the brain to not go down that reactive path. You sit there and... You know, no one's 100% clear how it works. They do know it actually changes the parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex becomes thicker, the fight, flight, or freeze areas, they shrink in gray matter. It's really fascinating. But what I think is that you sit there and it's not like rainbow sparkles shoot out of your ear and you're in bliss. It's like you sit there and you're like, oh, I think I need to do blah, blah, blah. Oh, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Oh, I forgot to do this. Your brain goes crazy and emotions arise and all this stuff comes up and you stay and you just stay and you stay and you redirect your attention to the breath or the sounds or whatever. You just stay. And so you're practicing literally building a muscle of non-reactivity. And so reducing your overall stress in your life, having a mindfulness practice, and it doesn't have to be a lot, like it could be five minutes a day, right? Like it can really build this muscle that will affect every relationship you have in your life and especially one with your child where you're most likely to be reactive. But then in those moments, you practice in those moments too. 
I've been known to one moment where I got like super triggered a couple of years ago. I got super triggered at we had movie night and I think my other daughter was nine. She wouldn't go to bed. And I was like, I'll just ignore her. And then, and then she laughed at me and I was like, <laughs> I was like instantly into like from irritated to raging volcano. So what I did in that moment, I yelled, but I yelled skillfully. I said, I'm angry right now. And I slammed the door and went and walked up and down the street for 20 minutes. <laughs> but these are things you can do. Like it's much better knowing your child's safe, remove yourself from a situation than it is to like lose your shit at your kid and scare the heck out of them with your rage, right? Like it's so much better to remove yourself and then resource. Like what are things that can calm my nervous system right now? The deep, slow breaths are cliche because they were moving the energy out of the body, walking, shaking, all that stuff. You know, what comes to mind too is that I'm not sure if it's more helpful for a child to watch you model being a complete Zen mom and not having any big emotions <laughs> versus seeing your mom kind of flip her lid a little bit, but not handle it that way. Like I have big emotions that I cannot contain. I'm going to take a deep breath. I need to go in the other room for a minute. Mommy needs to take a walk, whatever, because then you're actually modeling for them the tools they can use when they have big emotions that are out of control. Yes, exactly. Like it is not helpful for your kids to have a perfect mom. Not that you're not, nobody is able to be perfect. Right? I mean, but I like, am a perfect mom, but <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Except for you. But yeah, like we're so hard on ourselves when we're not, we don't meet our standard. But yeah, our kids need to see that we're human. They need to see our process. It's okay for us to be human. It's much better for us to be like Hunter and Melissa and mom rather than like the role of mom. It's much better to just be human and to to be transparent about your process because they really, really do learn from that. It's incredibly helpful for kids to see that. They need to see that modeled because they're going to have all those big feelings and they need to know there's nothing wrong with me for having big feelings. That's what happens to everybody and it's okay. And actually there's research that shows that there's kids give bids of interaction with their parents, right? Constantly. And there's some research shows that the very best parents responded to their kids in a, a kind and consistent way 30% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like we have to be perfect in any way, shape or form. It's okay for us to be human. It's okay for us to have our challenges. But like I said, it really helps for us to direct our learning energy and our attention to the places where that can potentially do the most damage. For most of us, that's when we're reactive because we're just not thinking clearly. Right. And it can be such a vicious cycle too. I've found the more I educate myself, the greater of a chance I act in a way that I want to actually act but also the greater the chance that I am that I'm hard on myself because I'm like, I know this information. Why couldn't I do this better? Like you already read this in three different books, Melissa, <laughs> whatever it is. And it reminds me of one of the books that I read a few months ago was How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, which is a great book. There's a lot of dialogue, right? And I was reading the yeah. reviews of it and most of them are stellar reviews. Oh my God, thank God, whatever. And then there's this one, one star and like the subject line is in all caps and it's just like, okay, this is great and all, but like, 
there's so much talking. What if I'm just mad? You could tell the mom was like actually in fight or flight <laughs> as, she's, as she's writing this. And I'm like, oh, calm down, Cheryl. <laughs> Things will get better. But that goes to show with yelling for me, sometimes when I actually learn why it's futile, it's helpful. Cause I'm like, okay, yeah. like, you know what? I'll show up better later, but right now you need to be yelled at. So you really get the point. But research does show that yelling is ineffective. Mm-hmm. Why? And what should we be doing instead <laughs> in that moment when we're just so angry? Yeah, it is ineffective, but let's be real. Like all of us are going to yell. Sometimes we're not like asking anyone to be superhuman, but we should know that Yelling puts our kids into their fight, flight, or freeze stress response, right? Which cuts off access to their whole brain. And they can't learn whatever you were trying to teach them. What would they need to learn in that moment? They may need to learn to not run out into the street. They may need to learn whatever to not hit their baby sister. And to yell at them makes it so they can't learn that. And so that's why it's basically ineffective. And it makes kids resent you rather than understand the effects of their behavior on others and on yourself. So what's better in that moment, if we can, I think it's often helpful to remember that 99% of the times we don't need to like say something right now. (laughs) We can take that moment to, okay, Oh my goodness, this is happening. Okay, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to let it out. And then sometimes as we can start to narrate, like, I'm seeing you're doing this. I'm feeling really scared because I saw you playing near the street. I'm holding my arm here to protect you because that scared me so much because this is so scary. But if we can take that moment to if we can practice that habit of non-reactivity, if we can practice some mindfulness, we can then take that moment between stimulus and response and pause, then we can choose a more thoughtful response. If we just go, we're just reactive, there's no place for choice. And so it's wonderful in a lot of ways to learn all these wonderful ways to respond. But yeah, the first step is always to kind of take care of yourself and then We have to be able to have enough brain power available to think to ourselves like, whoa, what does my child need to learn in this moment, right? So instead of yelling, what does my child need to learn in this moment is really the question we need to ask ourselves. So we don't yell, what do you need to learn? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and another thing you point out in your book is, About anger's refractory period where all the information that we take in confirms or justifies the emotion that we're feeling. And I have had to get to a point of really training myself to let the emotion pass. And I'm curious when my son gets old enough, I'm curious if that's something that I'll be able to teach him through modeling. When I do get triggered, like, hold on, mommy needs to wait for this emotion to pass without feeding it because that's what we do so often. And I'm combining knowledge from multiple books that I've read. But one Mm -hmm. of the things I've learned a while ago is that 
the emotion that we hold really only lasts for 90 seconds unless mm-hmm. we feed it. And so mm-hmm. if you are angry for 25 minutes, that means you've been feeding your anger for about 23 and a half minutes. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have just passed if maybe you would have sat there in a meditation, if somebody would have called you and given you a great opportunity or anything else. And so how have you been able to sort of teach your child to deal with their own big emotions as well? Well, it varies and it varies on the child quite a lot too. But yeah, I just want to talk to that refractory period because that is something that mindfulness helps with us so much because we start to see that rumination cycle of, oh, I'm having that thought again. Oh, I'm having that thought again. We can interrupt it. And so it really does shorten that period and let the emotions flow through more quickly. With our kids, it really does depend on our kid. I think that I know for sure that the most powerful form of teaching is modeling, is us showing them how to do that. And then on top of that, some people have more or less success teaching their kids specific techniques, and it depends on the kid and the relationship and things like that. But these emotional skills are things we can teach to all kids to be able to identify what am I feeling, to be able to identify some things I can do when I'm frustrated and angry, I have a bunch of energy in my body. We can help them identify some things we can do. And it may not be like, I think the most successful teaching of that doesn't happen from the top down, but happens in a conversation. What is it, and this is not happening with you with your eight-month-old, obviously, but what soothes you? What helps you calm down, honey? Hmm, I wonder if, what can you do in some moments when you're really upset and asking those conversations? And then, of course, when you have a, a child who's eight months old, right, like, When they're young, like just with like every skill they learn, first we do it for them, then we do it with them, then we watch them do it. There's a process of learning and that's how like with our babies, right, we soothe them and then we're with them while they soothe themselves. And then eventually when they're older kids, they may be doing it on their own and we watch them do it. But yeah, there's different levels of teaching that can happen. That's not totally my expertise, but people have some great success. Some people are teaching kids to meditate. My kids, personally, (laughs) their mom is the mindful mama mentor, so they're allergic to everything (laughs) that has to do with that. (laughs) Oh my, no, I was really hoping. And if it's happening to you, it's likely to happen to me. (laughs) Like he's going to either be the most Zen child ever or completely rebel And if he's anything like me, it's going to be completely rebelling. Well, one of the things you have a section in your book about what not to say and how there's these barriers when we order our kids around, when we threaten them, blaming, name calling, those four seem pretty obvious, even though they're often our default. But if we brought some attention to it, we'd be like, okay, yes, I can see maybe why that wouldn't work. But the last one you talk about is advising and offering solutions is something that we shouldn't do. Can you give an example of what that looks like and then why we shouldn't do it and a better way to handle it? Sure. I mean, say, Melissa, you come to me and you say, Hunter, my partner, he's doing this and I'm very frustrated. And I say, Melissa, this is what you should do. Make sure you leave the house now and go <laughs> to your mother's. When we have some unsolicited advice given to us, 
it's very frustrating. And for a lot of us, it happens to come from our spouse, right? When we're <laughs> frustrated and we talk to our spouse and we get some advising on what to do with that. At least that is the case for me, for sure. Oh yeah, I get you. A lot of times it actually really takes, when someone has a problem, actually that person just needs to vent and talk and clarify their problem and understand it more. So we talk about acknowledging what they're saying, <laughs> reflecting back to them, reflective listening, reflecting back to them what they're saying. And it's kind of like a therapeutic way of listening. And as the case in therapy, it becomes very helpful to like clarify your thoughts, et cetera. And there can be a place where you say, I have some ideas here. Can I have, would you like some suggestions? We can do that. But if our child comes to us and says, oh my God, I hate going to school. I'm never going to school again. And we say, well, of course you have to go to school. We dismiss their problem. Like then we may not have really understood, but if our child comes to us and says, I'm not going to school. And we say, oh, wow, you're so upset. You're really hating school right now. Yes, Sophie on the bus, she won't sit with me anymore. She doesn't want to talk to me. And we say, oh my goodness, that feels bad to have her not want to talk to you. I bet that feels terrible. Oh, it does. And it just makes me not want to go to school anymore. We may not have understood, right, that it has nothing to do with school. It has to do with a friend on the bus. And if we can help listen and we can acknowledge and reflect back, often the onion will unpeel and we'll have more understanding and the child or the person with the problem will have more understanding of their problem. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that works even for adults, like you mentioned the oh, yeah. spouse thing. It took us a couple years, but eventually it got to the point where now I go to my husband and I say, I need to tell you this beforehand. All I need you to do is support whatever I say, even if I sound like a crazy person. Oh my gosh, this just happened. He's like, oh my gosh, she's terrible. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, and then I might come back a couple hours later. Okay, now tell me how you really feel. I'm ready. <laughs> but, but I've got to get that first part out. Otherwise, it just feels like my spouse is on the other team. And I'm sure that's how we come across as parents. It's like, why do you never take my side? Well, the yeah. other thing that really stood out as a great tool to use is using iMessages, even when it's technically about the child. And so can you give an example of how to use an iMessage when we're trying to get maybe a new behavior across to our child? Yeah. So when kids are going to be kids, like they're going to inevitably like annoy us, disturb us. (laughs) They're going to be frustrating. They're going to be, they're by definition immature. So like their behaviors are going to infringe on us (laughs) for sure. Um, That's definitely a place where we want to draw some boundaries, right? As parents is when their behaviors are infringing on us. So if you have a kid who's like, left their toys, their Legos all over the living room. And you're like, you're a slob and this is a mess. Pick this up right now. And they're not going to respond to that too well. Because if I call you a slob, it's, you feel like, hey. And for them to say, okay, is like to acquiesce to that name and agree with it, right? So that tends to make them resentful. But instead, if we can say like how this behavior So all the ordering around, the name calling, all of those things, they just are not that effective because they cause this resistance in kids. No one likes to be ordered around, not at any age. Sorry, (laughs) it's hard when you're a two-year-old and all day long it's put on your shoes, put away your clothes, put on your jacket, get in the cart, right? We want to think about how can we 
talk to our kids in a way that's not ordering? How might we talk to an adult in this situation? How might we talk to a respected auntie perhaps even? So an iMessage is to just let our kids know how this behavior affects you and how it makes you feel. So, yo, when these Legos are all over the living room, I feel so frustrated because when I walk, it hurts my feet and I can't walk across the living room, right? And if we can look our kids in the eye and let them know this message, and we may have to have a couple of very repetitions of it, then they're likely to understand, oh, they can't even walk across the living room. Okay, like I'll do something about it. But if we bark and order at them, they're going to be automatically resistant. It's not like the perfect button that makes the automaton of the child do whatever you want (laughs) because children are humans and they don't work like that, but is much, much more effective and much less likely to cause resistance because there's nothing to argue about. Like you're only talking from your own experience and how something affects you. Right. And when you make them aware of how their behavior affects somebody else, it makes them a more, not intuitive, but aware child in general. And I wonder too, So many of us grew up in the age of like, oh, because I said so, or your parents just said something and so you have to do it, or they tell you to pick something up, no more questions, just do it. And I also have noticed one of the things that I help people with the most is helping people get in touch with their own emotions and their own underlying reasonings for things. Like there are so many things in my life where I'm like, I don't even know why I feel resistance and it takes weeks, months. Now I'm good at it. I can get it in a day or two. But before, I mean, it took me a good 10 years to really unravel my own triggers. Like what were my subconscious patternings and all of those things. And so again, for me, it goes back to modeling for our child. Like, okay, my mom's bothered by something and she just told me exactly why she's bothered by it. (laughs) You know, like I wonder if that's going to help the child too voice their boundaries in a better Mm -hmm. way instead of expecting people to know because that's what so many of us do is we expect people to know our boundaries and then wonder why we feel so out of sorts when we're around people or why we're triggered by so many things. Yeah, exactly. That's an incredible effect of that. And sometimes people worry like, I don't want to burden my child with my feelings as well. But our kids live in a world of of humans with feelings. And it is really important to know how their behaviors affect others. And then it's because of how they care for you, right? Then they are intrinsically motivated to change their behavior rather than extrinsically motivated. We think of like extrinsically motivated behavior and kind of like having to monitor that. It's not actually that effective. Like you talked about how it made you want to sneak around. Think about a speeding down the highway and the police, right? The only time everybody slows down on the highway to 55 or whatever is because there's an enforcer there like monitoring the situation. But because nobody has intrinsically motivated there, we're all extrinsically motivated by this enforcement. No one is just not speeding because it's the right thing to do or it's safe or because their behavior affects others. And that's a great example of that. When we can start to say, oh, this is how my behavior affects others. And yeah, and then we can also tell others how things make them feel. In mindful parenting, we have people have like little kids saying to their siblings, like, When you do that, I feel hurt. It's like amazing. It's so great. It's so much better than our old way of of speaking. And what I find really motivating is this isn't all about just like 
crafting our kids or like getting our kids to be as stable as possible. Every time that we're showing up in a way that does help our kid to develop that thing, whether it's emotional intelligence or it's learning to be calm or to be self-driven, all of those things, when we are doing the practices, we're working on ourselves in a way too. And what came up while you were speaking was about somebody saying like, well, I don't want to burden my emotions or my children with my emotions. And a few things came up for me with that. And there's a difference between burdening your child with your emotions, like crying to them because something didn't go well at work or like (laughs) you got in a fight with your spouse. Let me talk to my three-year-old about it. (laughs) Or, but when you're just doing it with normal things, like, Hey, I feel frustrated when I see this big mess, whatever it is, I can't walk across the room. Those emotions aren't a burden. And it tells me that that might be something to look at for the parent where it's like, do you view all of your emotions as a burden? And so Mm. if so, are you modeling that to your child to where they're going to think their emotions are a burden? And so Mm -hmm. when we're showing up in this way, it's like, okay, well, I recognize I'm not actually burdening my child. Wait, what is my thought about that? My first thought, what does that tell me about me? So all of these things can help if we have the time or the willingness to sit down for a moment and just reflect. And again, it doesn't have to be every single action, it could be 30% of the time that you show up your best for these arguments, but you're still going to be, you're going to give them a a 30% head start than you may have had growing up. So those are just important things to remember. And for me, I mean, my child's only eight months old. He can't even talk yet. And I swear I have shown so much light on different shadows that I didn't even know I had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think three days alone with some toddlers would be a faster road to enlightenment than six months alone or six years alone on a mountaintop. (laughs) It'll (laughs) certainly show you where you have to have some work to do. (laughs) Well, there is so much in your book that I didn't even get to touch on today. There's so many... And not just actual understanding of what's going on in your brain, why things do work or don't work, but actionable insights and practices to take away. So for listeners that are interested in learning all of the things that we did not have a chance to cover here, where's the best place they can connect with you online? Sure. They can find Raising Good Humans Anywhere books are sold and there's a great audiobook version of it as well for listening people. And everything else, you can find me at mindfulmamamentor.com. You can find me on Instagram at mindfulmamamentor and let me know if this episode helped you think about anything differently. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 208. Your challenge for this week is every single day, even if just for five minutes, find a time to set aside and meditate a little bit. I know as a parent, this can be incredibly difficult. I went from meditating 40 minutes a day all through my pregnancy to having no time at all. And now I am doing whatever I can to squeeze it in. So I am talking with my husband about, hey, can you take the baby for a while so I can meditate? He knows this is like eating a meal for me right now. I've also been waking up earlier so that I can do that. I've been prioritizing it over cleaning the house when my baby naps. I'm squeezing it in wherever I can. And for me right now, 
A lot of times this looks like different times each day, except for my morning meditation. If I'm able to squeeze out of bed without him waking up, I do that first thing so that I get it out of the way. I try to squeeze in another session, even if it's just for a few minutes in the evening time as well, or when he's napping. Sometimes I've even been wearing him and trying to meditate at the same time. Whatever works. It doesn't need to be on a cushion or in the ways that you've seen yogis meditate. It can be whatever works for you. Closing your eyes before you fall asleep and just practicing letting your thoughts go by without reacting. You are building a muscle of non-reactivity and this is the absolute best way to do that. You can also use everyday moments as meditations, whether you're walking with your baby and you think of something and you don't automatically grab your phone and purchase it on Amazon or whatever it is, allowing those thoughts to pass like a moving meditation can work as well. You can use actual interactions with your children or your spouse or your partner or whoever that is by just allowing what your first thought is to pass by. Allowing yourself to be calm in the moment instead of shouting back what your first thought is. There's so many opportunities to practice non-reactivity. So let me know how it goes and reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. We are right smack in the middle of parenting month. So if you know parents in your life that could use a little bit of mindfulness or save some time reading all the books, <laughs> send them to Mind Love this month and tell them to subscribe so they don't miss an episode. Ways to support the show, the absolute best way is by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com premium. Other ways to support the show are by supporting my amazing sponsors. It's really a win-win. They sponsor me for longer and you get something that you love. Or by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or sharing the show. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.